Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Stuart Ritchie Casey, a silk at Fountain Court. This is a rather special episode of the podcast, recorded to mark International Women's Day 2023. I was delighted to host a conversation with Court of Appeal Judge Lady Justice Carr, a trailblazer at the bar and on the bench. Silk, Head of Chambers, Chair of a Specialist Bar Association and Member of the Senior Judiciary. As a woman, a rarity on each appointment. Lady Justice Carr read Modern Languages and Law at Trinity College, Cambridge. She was called to the bar in 1987, where she practised from what became four new square chambers and was appointed a Queen's Counsel in 2003. In 2009, she was appointed a recorder and she was chair of the Professional Negligence Bar Association in 2007 and 2008, chair of the Conduct Committee of the Bar Standards Board from 2008 to 2010. And in April 2011, she was appointed disciplinary commissioner in proceedings before the International Criminal Court. She also served as head of chambers at Four New Square from 2012 to 2013. At all times, she maintained a formidable practice, principally in commercial law and professional indemnity work. In June 2013, she was appointed a High Court judge assigned to the Queen's Bench Division. At first instance, she sat in all three jurisdictions in the Rolls Building. She was the first ever female High Court judge to sit in the Technology and Construction Court and only the second to sit in the Commercial Court. She's been a judge of the Court of Appeal since April 2020 and was sworn of the Privy Council in April 2021. From August 2020 until the end of January 2023, Lady Justice Carr was also the Senior Judicial Commissioner and Vice-Chair of the Judicial Appointments Commission. She's a bencher of the Inner Temple and the mother of three grown-up children. In this episode, we speak about her career to date. Her experience is one of the few, and sometimes only, female in her professional environment, as well as recent improvements in the representation of women across the legal sector, and what more can be done to combat inequality. She shares her top 10 tips for thriving in the profession, and we also touch upon the pressures that come with being known as a trailblazer, as well as how the legal world can work together across law firms, the bar and the judiciary to create a more mutually supportive working environment and an even higher performing profession, something which is particularly important to me as head of Fountain Court's Wellbeing Committee. On a personal note, Lady Justice Carr was particularly kind to me when I was starting out in the profession, assisting me in applying for tenancy where she had no need to do so. You remember thoughtfulness like that with great clarity, and we've remained in contact ever since. I hope you enjoy the episode. Sue, welcome to Fountain Court. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. You've had a career filled with extraordinary success and achievement. Tell us how you got into the law. Thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. How did I get into the law? It's a good question. I think the honest truth is that I was probably a linguist at heart. For many years, my career options ranged from being an air stewardess to a teacher to a translator in The Hague or something like that. And then reality struck and I thought perhaps none of those options really were for me. My mother tore up my RADA application form, so acting went out of the options as well. But then I suppose, as with many people, law wasn't that far from acting, certainly if you were going to go to the bar. And I thought about going into the law. 
At that time as well, there were universities, even more so now, I think, but there were universities beginning to offer mixed degrees. So I was lucky enough to find a degree where I could do languages for a year and then move on to law. And it went on from there. So it sounds like the bar was the next obvious step. It was the next obvious step. And there is a bit of acting involved and a bit of drama. And I did really enjoy carrying that on. And I did carry on the acting as well, actually, the Bar Theatrical Society for many years. So that was an added bonus. No, but the bar seemed to me like a really good opportunity to combine that acting, that love of acting with the academic side. And I was lucky enough to have a fantastic education. So not putting that to waste was something my mother was quite keen on as well. You were in practice at the set, which is now Four New Square, a leading commercial and professional negligence set. Did you aspire to practice in those areas or did they emerge? So I did my first six at Brick Court and then moved to Two Crown Office Row, which is now Four New Square. I don't think I ever aspired as such to going into commercial law or professional liability law. But once I got to Two Crown Office Row, which was already then the preeminent set for professional liability, and I did more and more of it, I began to realise it did really suit me because it really blends two sides of what I enjoy. I didn't want to do something that was purely human distance, purely arid, purely document-based. I wanted to do something that involves human beings and either attacking or defending somebody's professional reputation, even if it's all about money, is ultimately always about a human being as well. So, So there was that side to it. But equally, there was comfort in knowing that the professional always has an insurer, nearly always has an insurer behind them. So in the unlikely event, Stuart, that anyone would make a mistake, let alone me, I didn't think, my God, they're going to lose their house because I failed to ask the killer question in cross-examination. But it basically, the short answer is, it, it, I didn't aspire to it, but it, it really was a happy marriage for me in terms of subject matter, because it marries, as I say, this human side with the commercial side at the same time. The first three women High Court judges, Elizabeth Lane, Rose Heilbronn, Margaret Booth, were all appointed to what's now the family division, despite none of them having any prior experience in that area. Um, Not until 1992 was a woman appointed to the QBD, now the KBD, that was Anne Ebsworth, and with Mary later later at Lady Arden as the first woman Chancery Division judge in 1993. Now, even now, uh, only one of 14 commercial court judges and two of 16 Chancery judges are women, although three of eight technology and construction court judges are women. Do you think there remains a perception at the bar that women are more readily associated with work in areas such as family or employment, perhaps regulatory work, and less so uh, with, for example, commercial or chancery work? And if that's right, how can it be changed? I think this is such an important question. It's probably one of the areas closest to my heart, gender stereotyping. It's such an important topic. I tell a story about going to a party. I often go to a drinks party and I stand next to somebody charming, nice, decent, good, And they'll say, five minutes in, and what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a lawyer. And they'll say, what type of lawyer? And I'll say, I'm a judge. And quick as a flash, they will respond by saying, do you sit in family? And it's just subconscious stereotyping. They're trying to be pleasant. They're trying to fill a gap, make social small talk. But it still is out there. And it is still a really important issue that the professions and the judicial system, everybody has to tackle. The Example of the first three women High Court judges you give is revealing because Rose Heilbronn, for example, had no family experience whatsoever. When she was criminal law or common law, 
or even commercial, but to find her in the family jurisdiction does speak volumes. What do we do about it? Well, the answer uh, is, as always, sort of multi-layered. I think there are things that chambers can do and are doing, you know, work, distribution, allocation, monitoring, all that sort of thing is key and an awareness and discussion about it. I think also it comes from within. Women can get out there and have good discussions with their clerks and their colleagues about this issue and put markers down. But I also think, particularly if we're talking about the bar, that much of the problem begins and, dare I say, sometimes ends with clients. Because the bar is a referral service, it's very vulnerable to keeping clients happy, whatever that means. And if clients aren't alive or keen on or aware to, of these sorts of issues, then they can compound problems. And you and I have been discussing different areas of work, banking, consultancy, where clients will insist on being serviced by a team that has at least one woman under seven years call and at least one woman over seven years call or the equivalent. I think that's really, really important. And quite often, I suspect, Stuart, you and I don't know what goes on behind the scenes in the clerk's room or in clients' discussions when they're choosing their barristers or their solicitors. But I suspect some of it's not necessarily very healthy. And I think if the clients could drive this from the bottom, and it's not positive discrimination, but just pressing an awareness of the need to have women in the top commercial and chancery TCC cases, that would really help. I also think that the specialist bar associations and specialist law societies themselves have a role to play. You mentioned three out of eight TCC judges being women. Uh, when I was in the TCC, in fact, we were the first jurisdiction to go 50-50. We were, I think it was 4-4 for a while. But women in construction industry generally is a big topic. There aren't enough. But there's a, a society called the Adjudication Society, which is just, I think, next week or the week after next, launching a number of big initiatives to increase the number of women adjudicators, because there are hardly any women who sit on adjudication panels. So a multi-layered answer, rather a long one, I'm sorry for that, but it's a combination of everybody working together to tackle this issue, because I, I, I think it's really important. I just go back to one aspect of that, which is very interesting. You talk about the, uh, the, the role, perhaps, of clerks. And uh, there's no doubt there's been a focus by certain sectors and the banking sector is well publicised who have wanted to go out into the profession and make the case uh, for working together collaboratively to improve the representation of women. Other sectors haven't got uh, to that point yet. To what extent do you think it's practical or do you think it's open to, to clerks to be opening those discussions with clients and representatives of clients? It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. No, I think... And I'm one removed, so forgive me if I'm out of touch. I think, and I would understand the, the potential difficulties, but if the clerks had the backing of chambers and they knew they had the backing of chambers, then I would have thought they could proceed pretty fearlessly. Any discrimination is illegal, and we make it clear that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about improving things. And I would have thought that if, if heads of chambers and the relevant committees and perhaps on an issue like this, Chambers as a whole, because as you say, of the potential repercussions, everybody gets behind the clerks, then it should be a, an open door. But I don't think, I don't want to underestimate the difficulties. I can see it's sensitive territory. And I can also see that the issues may be different when you're dealing with a magic circle firm and a less well-resourced firm. You have to be realistic and you have to be sensitive and pragmatic. 
but I'm sure that it's an area where work can and, and should be done. It's just about changing attitudes and recognising the benefits to everybody of having a more inclusive, diverse, representative team. And it may, I suppose, be a case of actually those who are engaged in best practice sharing, because one sees that in many of the law firms are doing that. They're calling it out. They are making public their attempts to do that. And sets of chambers likewise. Yes. It's something that we may come on to discuss later, but um, it's all part of an evolutionary process. And much of the change, I think, is also being driven by the generation that is coming in. They're very empowered. They have a clear vision. They've been through a pandemic. Life experiences have been very different. And I think people are beginning to wake up to the fact that if they're going to be attractive to the brightest and the best across a diverse pitch, then they've got to move with the times. And that means having working practices that are acceptable, having an attitude to diversity and eradicating so far as one ever can these difficulties of subconscious bias that we've been tussling with here. Now, you, you made brief reference to it, but I mean, you broke new boundaries in the Rolls building, as I think the first ever female technology and construction judge, and only the second commercial court judge. How did you find sitting in the Rolls building, which was traditionally, and by numbers at least, apparently still now very male preserved? Oddly, the question makes me laugh only because I always, the Rolls building is in fact, the judge's floor is in fact quite a feminine space, if I'm allowed to say that, because it's beautifully designed. It's bright, it's airy, it's got nice furniture. The judges' rooms are gorgeous. And yes, so in a way, ironically, it is a, a male preserve in some respects. It's actually a very nice, um, even the loo's are nice, Stuart, which you know, can make quite a difference. So that aside, and without um, wanting to be too glib, the honest truth is, and perhaps it's because I'm immune to it, it's never felt like a very male preserve. Perhaps it's the tone or the, the attitude, and perhaps people won't believe me. But I honestly never felt like an outsider because I was a woman, although when you give me the stats, it, it's very stark, but it genuinely didn't feel like that. Now, that may be because I am used to it, and it was more of the same in a way that I was very comfortable and happy with. I can say uh, that I never met with anything but the most enormous support from my male colleagues. I can honestly say that not once did I feel patronised or belittled or made to feel in any way more inadequate than I was making myself feel anyway. No, but they were nothing but incredibly kind and supportive and genuinely willing me on. When you arrive as a, a freshly minted High Court judge, you're always slightly starstruck by the people who are next door to you because they're people you've appeared in front of, whose books you've read, and you can't, can't quite believe it's happening. I always remember one particular example. David Richards was two rooms away from me and I was given some incredibly complicated sort of chancery restructuring motion thing. And I think David could just see the sheer terror on my face. And he spent a long time with me just talking it through. What was so striking, as I said, was the way he did it without making me feel inadequate. He did it in an entirely supportive, positive, constructive way. So there was a lot of support. And, and I mean, going back to being the first female High Court TCC judge, that was purely because of Anthony Edward Stewart's determination to see women sitting in the TCC. And I think that gender balance, which is almost 50-50, it was then, is reflective of the fact that although we've talked a lot about some areas of the bar being thin where women are concerned, the TCC bar 
is, is I mean, the stats for them where women are concerned are really excellent. I mean, they've got a huge number of female silks and female practitioners. So that's perhaps challenging some of the stereotypes we've been talking about. Well, it's probably right, isn't it, to put things in context. I mean, I think the statistics for last year for the profession show that now women constitute 39% of barristers, 53% of solicitors, 35% of court judges, half of tribunal judges, but less than 30% for high court and above. And that may, of course, reflect the fact that when you look at those uh, with 20 or more years' experience, the percentages drop uh, in respect to each of those in practice. Do you think those improved percentages are the product of real energy and drive towards better representation over the last 10, 20, 30 years? Or do you think that that's just the product of, of incremental change? I think it's a combination. There's no doubt that some of the work that's being done and has been done now for many years by chambers like Fountain Court, but by the inns, by the professional bodies as a whole, even by the judiciary, it must be having an impact. It's putting pressure on people. The Judicial Diversity Forum, you know, is working with all, all, all stakeholders in the appointments process and the professions as a whole trying to improve the stats. But the recognition now that there's no one single part of the jigsaw puzzle that is the solution, it's got to be a cohesive team effort from top to bottom, must be reaping rewards. I mean, the Alliance Women, the, the highlighting gender inequality in pay, you know, it's having a fantastic effect because it's so shocking how it has been unhighlighted for so long. I don't quite know. But I think perhaps we didn't, th- didn't realise what was happening in, our, in the professions, in the bar, perhaps. We just thought it was, it was not there, but it really is there. And I think that's been a, an extraordinary learning lesson of the last year or two when this is being highlighted. But I think there is a, a, an evolutionary aspect to it as, as well. I mentioned a few minutes ago about, you know, the new generation coming through, the fact they have their own attitudes and how the professions and all areas of society are going to have to adapt to these strong, brilliant people post-pandemic coming through with different expectations of what they want from their lives and what they know they are entitled to expect. So it's undoubtedly the product of the initiatives that are out there and increasing awareness. But in terms of evolution, it's about the resulting changes to working practices that I'm sure are bringing about an increase in the numbers. So the increased highlighting of all these issues means that chambers, judges, clients are all adapting to the fact they have to provide a better working environment for women and men if they're going to attract and keep the brightest and the best throughout their careers. I think just coming back to a point you made about the fact that people may not have been aware of things, that I suspect a lot of this is about a more transparent approach to these issues and people being prepared to discuss them in ways that they wouldn't have done perhaps when you or even I came into the profession. Do you think that's a positive? I think it's a real positive. I think, I guess, speaking personally, one of my, and I don't know whether this is of any interest to it, but when we talk about the increase in numbers, and of course it's important, it's it's essential, but I never want to lose sight of self-determination and what my own personal vision of feminism is, which is ultimately freedom of choice. And that's a tricky issue for, for lots of us, but it's particularly a tricky issue for young women. Whenever I mentor young women or I go out to schools, 
I look at all these bright, brilliant faces and I sort of see the future ahead of them. And it's a complicated one because they're all brilliant. And so, yes, if they want to be prime minister or leaders of industry. Uh, they could undoubtedly achieve that. But is it what they want? Perhaps put another way, is it what's going to make them happy? And giving young women and men the freedom of choice to do what's going to make them happy is probably to me more important than anything else. The two aren't necessarily doing what you could do or should do, whatever that means, and what you want to do isn't necessarily the same thing. These are difficult choices. Often money will drive it. I mean, your personal circumstances will dictate what you can afford to do and not to do. But I'd like to think that if my daughter, who could be prime minister, could afford to do something far less high profile, but which would make her happier and more rewarding on her personal scale, then she would have the confidence to do that, what she wants to do. And I think the next generation are much better at being self-determining in that way than my generation was. I think certainly for women of my generation, because we were relatively rare in terms of having potentially careers ahead of us with those opportunities, there was an enormous pressure on us not to, this isn't going to sound right, not to let the side down, not to get off the train, because you'd be letting so many people down, because there's the potential. You could be the trailblazer. You could make such a difference for so many people. And I hope that we would have done some of the work so that if not the next generation and the generation after us will have the freedom I've been talking about, that it's not letting the side down. Indeed, it's keeping the side up to make your own personal choices, to follow your own course, which will make you happy. And you're not letting anybody down, far from it. You're just doing what, what is the right thing for you. So I do, I do think that people my age, women my age, we were on a certain, there was pressure on us. And I hope that pressure will go. If I've achieved anything that I would like to feel, that I've taken some of the pressure off the next generations in that regard. So we talk about evolution and we talk about the stats and progress, and that's all really important. And this applies to, to women and men. But it's also keep what really matters in the mind's eye at the same time. We raise a very difficult question, don't you, which is that between the, the retention of women in the profession, indeed retention of all people within the profession, and what their obstacles are towards that, balanced perhaps on the other view that not everybody uh, wants to have a career for 40, 50 years at the bar. There are those who don't. But do you still see that notwithstanding the strides that have been made, that there are, if you like, hard-baked obstacles to the retention, particularly of women in the profession? Yes, and maybe they're not obstacles, they're just facts. So it's, it's changing maybe the language we use. So it's, not an, it's just a thing. If somebody wants to take time off, then that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's their personal choice to make them happy. And we support them to make the best of whatever they want to do around it, if that makes any sense. I remember each time I had a child, I took 12 weeks off uh, and I came back. I increased my hourly rate and ditched the clients I'd previously been acting for that I didn't particularly want to continue acting for. So actually, it was a really good way at each stage of reinventing myself. It was, you know, fully supported work very well. Dare one ask, do you think that there is something that the judiciary and the court system can do to bring flexibility to the way in which cases are heard that might enable those with domestic responsibilities, caring responsibilities to participate actively in a way that a number of people at the moment feel unable to commit to. I absolutely agree. And I think that one has to remember that certainly the senior judiciary hasn't been in practice for 10 years, so or 15 or 20 years. And so when I left the bar, things weren't great in terms of working practices on big cases, Stuart. 
you know, there's no question of not not being available 24-7. I've listened to you speak at various wellbeing events and the sort of initiatives you're, you introduce when you're leading a big team of barristers are brilliant. Never occurred to me that you will make sure that every person on the team has ring-fenced special time when they are absolutely not online, not on a phone, not online for 24 to 48 hours. That sort of thing is genius. It's not rocket science, but it takes principle and drive to sort it out. That sort of thing is so important. And I'm conscious. So when I sit, you know, I'm conscious of just going back to the way it was when I was at the bar, which is pretty unyielding. And you would make pretty hard timetables and expect them to be adhered to, particularly in the criminal courts. I think the judiciary has to be very sensitive to home commitments, domestic commitments, the financial pressures that the criminal bar is operating under. So the short answer is yes, I think we definitely need, the judiciary definitely needs to be aware of those sorts of issues and difficulties. I'd like to think that it's increasingly aware and we are receptive within boundaries. Everybody's working under pressure, it's difficult. It goes back to what we were talking about as well with clients. It's re-educating them so that so they're, I, I guess you would tell me the courts can be a nightmare, judges can be difficult in terms of timetabling. But if you do say to a judge, I'm very sorry, I've got a, an urgent medical appointment or I have no childcare overnight, most judges are going to at least listen and possibly be sympathetic to that. Clients, it's a bit more difficult. So you tell me, do you say to the client, I'm afraid um, I've got my son's really important cricket match that I've been dying to, to watch? Do you mind if I ask for an extension? You tell me, Stuart, do you do that? I would, I would suspect the majority of practitioners will say no to that. And indeed, picking up your point about judges, I suspect that it's, it's not a lack of receptiveness by judges on the whole. It's a lack of uh, confidence or courage or have you put it to practitioners to ask. But even then, there's, there's no doubt there's an expectation that the system is roughly the system. I, I certainly, sitting as a recorder during COVID, I was on a pilot scheme in the Reading Crown Court, sitting on split trials, which sat between 8.30 and 1 or between 2.30 and 6.00. And that was to maximise court usage. But it did make me wonder whether or not that sort of flexibility was a way forward. But as regards clients, it's very difficult, isn't it? You're, we're in a client-driven market and it's, it's rare, certainly at the bar. I think that people would have the courage to do that. And I've sometimes thought to myself that it's the strength of a, a very good leading partner in a law firm who's able to develop the sort of client rapport where there's that understanding that you're human beings and that the best service will ultimately come where you show that level of flexibility. I completely agree. And you'll get the most, it's all about rapport. And going back to your question about judges, I mean, I would like to think it's up to the judges to create the right atmosphere where there can be that openness. Well, let's just pick up on, on things. Because a couple of times now you've, you've made mention of working cultures changing, the empowerment of, of the younger generation. And I'm sure that's right. But when you started the bar, I suspect if you were asked to do something by a clerk or a leader, you, you would have done it pretty much come hell or high water at whatever personal cost. But now uh, junior barristers, junior lawyers come into the profession conscious, uh, rightly, that they too have lives, commitments, frequently their own responsibilities, caring responsibilities. And certainly, at least as I would see it, with the structural norms in society at present, this is so for women in particular, with caring responsibilities, often for children and parents and both. Do you think this does point to the profession recognising and appreciating red lines or boundaries imposed by more junior members of the profession, which partners or leaders or clerks, and dare one even say judges, should respect? I think it does. I think it's really exciting. 
we have voices. Everybody has their own voice. And whilst things around them can and need to change, I don't think one should forget that. So I have got frustrated in the past when I have talked to my children's friends and, you know, working conditions have been dreadful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have said to them, well, have you called it out? And I understand they're at the bottom of the pile and they're not in a position of strength, but they are beginning to call it out. And I, I think it is a good thing. And I think that uh, I've come back to it. I think the pandemic has made a big difference because they, many of them were working 17 hour days in a you know, one bedroom flat. And they just said to themselves, I'm never going to do this again. Never. This is not how I'm going to live. And perhaps that's a silver lining to a very big cloud. So I, I think it is definitely setting some boundaries. And yes, I, I suspect I would like to think now, if I was that junior barrister that I was back in 1988, 1989, 1990, when, as you say, I wouldn't have said boo to a goose when it came to work. I would have done anything I was asked to do, almost for any rate. I hear my children's friends now going, well, I, I might be interested, but only if it's X an hour. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, that's coming from a different world. But it's their life. They're not asking, if they're not being unreasonable, they're asking for, in terms of lifestyle, reasonable conditions in which to work. I don't have a problem with it. What do you think? Well, I don't have a problem with it at all, particularly when it's reasonable, but I do recognise, I think, that it's very difficult to do. I think it's extremely difficult for people to call it out, uh, and it takes either courage or sometimes perhaps even a perceived recklessness to be able to do it. And I think that the important thing, maybe the difficult thing, I don't know what you feel, is is being able to set in place a culture within yes. the organisation yes. that at least makes it possible to yes. do that, however yes. difficult it might be because yes. of the asymmetry of experience. And I, I certainly think, I mean, we've been talking about rejecting work or insisting on a certain fee. That's one side of it. But things like saying, I am switching my phone off and I will be offline for my two-week holiday is really important. And the honest truth is I don't think I ever switched off at the bar. And I see the next generation or however many decades below me it is, but they really are doing that. And I think that is really important for mental health and well-being and the soul, and good for clients as well. You've been quoted in the past as saying that over time, the way in which you measure success has changed, uh, and that the concrete markers of success, no doubt, tenancy, silk, head of chambers, high court judge, court of appeal, now find their place amidst more, more, more interpersonal experiences. You've referred in the past to mentoring or advice which you've been able to give. Can you share your thoughts on this? The quotes that you refer to refer to how unimaginatively I used to gauge success. And it is pretty unimaginative. If I was trying to be kind to myself, I would say that probably without that approach along the way, I probably wouldn't have got to where I am because you have to be pretty driven and benchmark focused in some ways. But there's no doubt that I guess the further up the chain you go, the greater the opportunities to help others emerge. And opportunities like this come their way, which they wouldn't otherwise come their way. And as the experiences balance each other out, things like mentoring and speaking to other people and feeling you've helped in an intangible way really does mean a lot. And It'll be the same with you, Stuart. You will affect people, help people in ways you never dreamt. And every now and then you'll get a little note or a card or a success and your heart will sing. Uh, you just think that's the most 
exciting thing that's happened to me in a long time. An example would be my involvement with the Kalisha Trust, which is really for the criminal bar, but where, amongst other things, we provide mock interviews, mock pupillage interviews. And the people that we work with are brilliant, but they're being offered an opportunity that never in their wildest dreams would they have imagined happening to them. And it's, it's humbling and incredibly rewarding. And yes, I, I would stand by what I said whenever I said it, um, that I certainly get as much pleasure and fulfillment in terms of feelings of success from those sorts of engagements. Work-life balance elicits as a roll of the eyes from most barristers, uh, either because it's such a hackneyed phrase or because it's uh, simply so elusive. There are often said to be a greater burden on women than men when it comes to juggling career and domestic demands, whether that's a product of society, uh, it's perhaps up for discussion. But in your career, have you made conscious decisions about how to achieve a balance that works for you, or have you simply rolled with the punches and tried to make the best of it? I think probably more of a conscious decision than rolling with the punches. I have been incredibly lucky to be married to somebody who has not only supported me, but actively promoted me throughout my career. Never, ever, ever held me back, made personal and professional sacrifices himself, not to go and take a job in South Africa, you know, in Australia, somewhere in Europe. So that's pretty incredible. And I hope at some stage you're going to ask me to give my top 10 tips because choosing the right partner is one of them. But that has been undoubtedly the single most important reason why I've been able to, to pull it off, so to speak, the work-life, the balance thing. And a second conscious decision I think I would point to is pretty inevitably, although I think I'll be shot down for this, if both parents work in London then you've probably, and you have children, you've probably got to live in London, which is quite a sacrifice because it's expensive and it's a sort of certain environment. Living in London is very expensive and all that sort of stuff that goes with it. But I think that, uh, well, certainly for us, we felt that if you want to get to a netball match or for a school parents evening and you're both working in London, then living outside London wasn't going to work. That's the second, obviously, conscious decision I've taken. And third things, yes, childcare, we're lucky with childcare, lucky enough to be able to afford childcare, continuity of childcare. And then I, I guess the rest of it is rolling with the punches, as you put it, Stuart. The children were all pretty pretty good. My daughter gave me a fantastic put down over Christmas, though. We were talking about, you know, work-life balance and working mums and all the rest of it. And she looked at me and she said, well, mum, you know, you did your best, which I thought was pretty faint praise. I took her to task about it. I think she meant to be kinder than that. But I suspect there was a little bit of that. There are times when you're simply just doing your best and nothing's quite perfect. Now, I can't not ask you for your top 10 tips in the light of what you said. Well, just in case it's of any use, just particularly for people who are starting out and thinking about, but perhaps there's stuff in here for the more mature practitioner as well, or member of the profession. So my top 10 tips issues surrounding professional success. One, do chart your own course. Individuality, what do you want? Two, don't compare yourself to others. Three, do think ahead and keep ambition alive. Four, don't expect others to manage your career or your life for you. Five, do create your own rules and then stick to them. Six, 
don't be afraid of the odd detour, maternity leave and so forth. Uh, I've told you where I ditched parts of my practice that I wasn't enjoying and increased my hourly rate whenever I had a baby. Seven, do seek and give support. Eight, if you want a partner, choose carefully. Nine, look after yourself. Stamina and good health are important. And 10, most importantly, don't waste time on worry. Who or what have been the particular sources of inspiration to you during your career? So the list there is a long one. One can't help but have been bowled over when we had all the 100 years of women in law celebrations about the stories of Eliza Orme, Bertha Cave, Gwyneth Bebb and the like. I mean, their stories, their individual stories and what they had to, to go through are quite extraordinary. So I must mention Elsie Bowerman, who was the first female barrister to practice at the Old Bailey. She was a Titanic survivor. She was a friend of the Pankhurst. She witnessed the Russian Revolution. She was the first head of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. So she's a pretty awesome individual. So lots of inspirational women. Ruth Ginsburg, can't not mention her. I don't know whether you saw her film. But it's not, it's not just women who have inspired me. Two men in particular have played an enormous part in my professional life. The sadly late Lord Toulson, who was just an extraordinary barrister and judge. His judgments uh, are so clear in all different jurisdictions, and he was no criminal specialist, but his judgments in crime uh, as well. They're just so clear, so balanced, so clever, uh, incisive. He was just wonderful. He gave me my red bag. He was always incredibly kind to me. and. Uh, miss him a lot. And he was a true inspiration. And then not so far away from him, uh, Sir Rupert Jackson. He's an astonishing man. He's still writing books on Roman history, as well as practicing full-time as an arbitrator after an illustrious career. And behind this incredibly driven, academic, sometimes fierce persona lies a warm heart, as somebody who is incredibly generous and with enormous humanity and, and insight. And he's been somebody who's been there all the way through for me and has inspired me along the way. I know from personal experience, you're a key musician. Uh, what are your interests away from the bar? If by that, Stuart, you mean I'm a pretty dodgy alto singer, you'd be right. But I do love singing in a choir on Monday evenings. And the well-being that I got through from that, particularly through coming out of the pandemic, was absolutely fantastic. That feeling of getting together again was invaluable. The honest truth is, apart from that and my family, there's not much time beyond work engagements, which is fine. If uh, there comes a time when I do have some more spare time, then perhaps I'll be re-auditioning for the Bath Theatrical Society. Sue, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Uh, very, very grateful indeed and for your thoughts. Thank, thank you. you, Stuart. Thank you. So there you have it, a very valuable perspective, which I think raised some real food for thought. Thank you very much once again to Lady Justice Carr for taking the time to speak to me about this extremely important topic. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Do join us next time on the Fountain Court podcast for more legal news and analysis. Music.